When I was a kid, I wore these big, ugly glasses that were often held together with white first aid tape because I broke them a lot. And I was obsessed with reading whatever I could get my hands on. The glasses made me look bookish, and the tape on them made me look geeky. And I tried to speak more like an adult than like a kid. I wanted to impress people with my braininess. I liked people to think I was smart. And that's never gone away. It's probably a big part of why I'm a teacher. We all have these things that we identify with, some of them pleasant, some not so pleasant. Many teachers and I identify as people who know a lot about the thing they're teaching. And sometimes because of that, we can fall into the trap of saying too much about what we're trying to teach. Saying everything you know about a complex topic might be impressive, but it can get in the way of good teaching. When we overload an opportunity to teach with too much information, we may successfully establish credibility with students with regard to our own understanding of the content, but we also reveal an ineffective teaching technique. We don't actually teach. And isn't teaching the point of calling something a class? Let go of the idea that students who come to your classes expect you to show them the full depth and breadth of your knowledge. Recall one of the things that was mentioned in last week's podcast. One of the lessons that I learned from Mati about teaching through her example is that teaching yoga is a process of guiding the students through their own experience. It's not an exercise in showing off knowledge. This episode is about the process that skilled teachers of modern postural yoga use to guide their students through practice versus showing them how much they do or don't know. Asana teachers have a world of possibilities at their disposal when it comes to how they teach a single pose, how they sequence a single class, and the overall trajectory of their teaching and of their students' practices. Since it's impossible to present every possibility in the context of a yoga class, and because there's no single way to teach a pose or to sequence a class, countless decisions must be made while planning what will be taught and how it will be taught, when it will be taught, and then those decisions are always re-examined and often changed when the actual teaching happens. This week's podcast is about teaching that's based on knowing what your desired outcome is for what you are doing, then executing it so that your teaching has clarity and consequence. This is about developing skill in knowing what to say and when and how to say it when you're guiding students through an experience of yoga practice. This is the My Yoga Practice podcast. I'm James Brown. I've been teaching yoga practice and how to teach it to people all over the world for over 20 years, since before, during, and after the explosion of yoga's popularity in the West. In this podcast, I intend to share with you the most important things about teaching that I have learned along the way. Yoga practice is to be tailored to the individual, yet it tends to be taught in a one-size-fits-all approach to people with different needs and abilities. In this podcast series, learn specific teaching strategies that allow each student in your classes to make the practice their own. One way to look at the success of a technique or method is to see what the outcome is. One very helpful tool to use when it comes to approaching the many different options you have for how to teach is to consider the desired outcome. When developing teaching strategies before class and in the moment that it's happening, consider what do you want the outcome to be? What kind of outcome you desire will be determined by factors like where you're going with that particular class, what you've already done, the level of the student, and your own level of expertise, to name a few. 
My teacher Mati loved to cook, and a lot of times when she taught asana or was working with teachers, she would use a lot of food metaphors. And this is a good place to apply one. She would say that putting a class together can be said to be like composing a meal. Like a meal, we want each modern postural yoga class to be satisfying, well-rounded, with the courses served in a certain order and at a certain pace. We want it to be healthy and nourishing. We want it to make us grow and to sustain us. Like this version of an ideal meal, we can endeavor to make each class meet these desired outcomes. Let's apply the concept of desired outcomes to a well-known pose, triangle pose, called Trikonasana in Sanskrit. It's one of the more commonly taught poses in yoga these days, and you can see a picture of it on this week's episode podcast page on the website. It's a standing pose where the feet are planted on the floor about one leg length apart with one leg turned outward 90 degrees and the torso tilted sideways from the hips so that it's more or less parallel to the ground over that leg that is turned out. Got it? That's the big picture, but there can be and there often is a lot of intricate detailed work that's going on as well. Here's how I would teach it if I wanted to cover all of the big points in the pose. In this example, the right leg is turned out. So triangle pose with the right leg turned out. Here is the pedant's version. Press down through the outer foot of the back leg and lift that inner thigh. Then press the inner thigh of the back leg away from the front leg's foot. In the front leg foot, press down through the mound of the big toe to straighten the leg and to rotate from the hip, the front thigh out toward the second toe of that foot. Lifting the thigh up into the hip crease, extend from the hip crease through the right side of the waist and the rib cage through the armpit as you draw the right shoulder blade away from the ear. Reach the left arm way up toward the ceiling so that the chest and the upper back spread and turn the head to look up at the left thumb with the right eye. Rotate the torso so that the left ribs are stationed above the right ribs and extend evenly through the two sides of the waist by pressing the outer left ribs in toward the midline. Now, if you're still here, and I don't blame you if you're not because that was awful teaching, but if you're still here, one of the only situations I can think of where that kind of teaching might be effective is in a yoga teacher training where you do indeed want to teach the aspiring teachers as much as you possibly can about a pose. But in a class that's not in a teacher training, and indeed even in teacher trainings, that approach doesn't always work. Instead of saying everything or saying the wrong things, choose a desired outcome. Why are you doing that pose at that moment in that sequence on that day to that class? Then work from there. To provide a lot of guidance in terms of the direction to go when making the many choices you must make as a teacher with regard to what it is you are asking students to focus upon, it's helpful to consider the sequence of the class that you are teaching. So let's say I'm teaching a class that leads to a pose with a lot of lateral hip rotation as we find in triangle pose. Like let's say that we're leading in a class toward half lotus pose. If that were the case, then in triangle pose, I would focus on what that front leg is doing, and I would only address the rest of the body as much as I needed to do in order to keep everything else safe and to support the action in the front leg, so the students know how to laterally rotate the hips skillfully, and so the joint is prepared for the deeper work to come. 
But if I was teaching triangle pose in a class that led to side arm balance, like Vashistasana side plank, I would focus my instructions on getting the arms and upper body to do the same things as they do in side plank, since they are aligned identically here and because it is harder to do it here. So they will really be ready when the time comes in side plank. The focus of my instruction in teaching triangle as a prep pose for side plank are things like, but not limited to, pressing down evenly through the supporting hand, isometrically contracting the wrist flexors and extensors, avoiding scapular elevation, reaching vigorously through the other arm and using the core intelligently to lengthen the spine. To do this version, I would know that the students will probably need to place a block to press the hand through, since pressing through the hand is one of the desired outcomes for this version that we have chosen. So I would now tell everybody to place a block near the front leg before bringing them into this particular experience of the pose. So you see, here we have the same pose done two different ways. In both versions, they look pretty much the same, but in each, the students are working differently physically and mentally to meet specific desired outcomes that you, the teacher, have chosen. When you teach this way, you slowly add specific skills and abilities over the course of the time that somebody is practicing with you, one at a time, so that over time, the whole thing starts to come together magnificently. And the pathway to that magnificence is, if you don't mind my saying, magnificent itself. Any single asana has multiple uses and purposes, whether to teach something, open something, strengthen something, or a combination of two or more of those things. When you consider what it is that you want to accomplish, you'll find that the process of deciding how to teach it, what to say, how to say it, how to use props and variations, how long to hold it, whether to repeat it, and all of the other types of choices you have to make as a teacher start to fall into place. Now that you're on board with the concept of desirable outcomes, let's put it into use. As a means to guide you toward and support your application of the concept of considering desired outcomes in your teaching, I'll provide you with a couple of almost universally desirable outcomes. These are things that you can almost always use as your guiding light in luminous teaching moments. Now, please note the use of almost. Sometimes, for a million reasons, you might have a different agenda, and that's okay. But here are a couple of suggestions for you that you might almost always consider to be desirable outcomes. The first almost universally desirable outcome is this. Focus the mind. With this desired outcome, we seek to bring the student to an experience of focusing the mind. We seek here to facilitate the beneficial mental practice of focus as yoga. In order for that to happen, we need to know what constitutes a practice. In this methodology, I refer to Patanjali for answers to questions like this, and that's because Patanjali defines practice in a way that is supremely helpful to the application of this methodology. Practice is, Patanjali states, effort toward mental stability. In other words, in order to make what you're doing a yoga practice as defined by Patanjali, we know that the overriding desired outcome for most of what we do in a class is that we want to provide for the practitioner a task that requires that they focus the mind.
Within that context, in a yoga class, there are infinite possibilities for what to focus the mind on and why. Become very interested in guiding your students toward a focused mind. Although you may never repeat the same exact class and you may approach individual poses in a new way every time you do them, and although these podcasts intend to teach you how to make decisions on your own about which path to follow in any one class, everything is geared toward providing your students with an experience in a class of repeatedly endeavoring to hold the mind still by sharply focusing it on one thing after another. That makes the work on the mat a yoga practice in the truest sense of the word. The way that we focus the minds of our students is that we give them something to focus on that is interesting enough to them to want to focus on it. And that is what the second almost universally desirable outcome is all about. The second almost universally desirable outcome is to work at something called the tapas point. This one is physical. It's about making the body more optimally functional, which is what a lot of folks come to class for these days. Some physical change. When we work at the tapas point, we do work that requires focus on the part of the practitioner, and that supports the first almost universally desirable outcome, which is to focus. The object of focus that the practitioner brings to an asana class at this point in history is very often their body. We live in a time when having an optimally functioning body is more of an option than it was just a couple centuries ago. Not too long ago, if you didn't have a strong and healthy body, you didn't survive. Now it is entirely possible for much of the world to be mostly sedentary and still survive. So they've come flocking to asana classes. Yoga asana can be a way to affect the positive shift of identity that Patanjali's text claims it will, but highly relevant to the times we live in, it can also be practiced in a way that addresses the three main problems that come with the otherwise sedentary life of the modern human. Issues with strength, issues with openness, and issues with knowing how to use the body. Many people have experienced the positive effects of yoga practice. This approach is about facilitating the following things in the yoga class. It's about making the body stronger where it needs to be stronger for injury-free optimal functionality, making the body more open where it needs to be more open for injury-free optimal functionality, teaching the practitioner more about how to use the body for injury-free optimal functionality, and benefiting the practitioner by repeatedly focusing the mind, the process that defines Patanjali's form of yoga practice. When these things happen, the practitioner has a better experience of life. Doing that professionally and skillfully is a noble endeavor. So what does it mean to work at the tapas point? Tapas is the Sanskrit word for beneficial, difficult growth in one's practice. The tapas point is when coming into a pose, the point of depth where limitations in range of motion, strength, or skill prevent one from going more deeply without losing the alignment or other quality of work that you've determined to be in line with your chosen desired outcome. Just how you know how to get there and what to do there is the subject of a future episode of this podcast, because there's a lot to it. 
For now, one wonderful thing about knowing how to work at the tapas point, which may be at different points with different desired outcomes, is that whether that limitation is flexibility, strength, knowledge and skill, or in combination, it is addressed because you are working at the current end range of functionality, no matter why that end range is where it is. So why are these almost universally desirable outcomes? Because you don't always have to be doing them. These things are hard. To get your students to really get into this, don't overwork them, watch them. Learn to see what it looks and feels like when your students are ready for more and when they've had enough. If they're still able to focus and work skillfully, you're probably in the zone. If you're being too easy on them, they'll get bored and they'll lose focus. If you're being too hard on them, they'll get tired and lose focus. So know what your desired outcome is, assign objects of focus for your students accordingly, and know what it is that you're asking the students to focus on. See if they're actually focusing on it, and if they are, continue. If they are not, shift your strategy. In deciding what your desired outcome is in any given teaching situation, consider how it fits into the story of that sequence or into the narrative scope of the student's overall practice. Consider the context for this event, whether it be a pose, an instruction, or a segment of the class. To do these things well, you do need to know a lot about what it is that you're teaching. In order to work at the tapas point, it is important that you understand what is happening at each of the joints where you're asking your students to become more strong, open, or skillfully functional. So in future podcasts, we'll cover principles of many of the elements that will be useful to understand so that you can teach your classes using the principles presented here. Things like sequencing classes, principles of hands-on adjustments and demonstrating poses, and how to mentally and physically prepare for, move into, work at, and come out of the tapas point that you, as the teacher, have chosen as the desired outcome for that moment and for your teaching. You can see a picture of triangle pose, the pose that was mentioned in this podcast, on the podcast page at myyogapractice.com. There you can also access resources for teachers and practitioners of modern postural yoga, including over a hundred video lessons that exist to help teachers teach yoga better. And you can also learn about and book private long-distance mentorship sessions for teachers. Please rate, review, subscribe to, and share the My Yoga Practice podcast. Thank you for listening.